Jeff York of the Establishing Shot. Welcome to uh, this very, hopefully a very fun conversation about uh, a very important movie to me, uh, Hollywood Shuffle by Robert Townsend. Criterion just uh, put out, actually today, uh, Tuesday, a, a new Blu-ray version of the film um, with a bunch of extra things on it. And um, it's just, it's great to go back and revisit a movie every few years, which I've done uh, with this film. I did a written review of it about five years ago, um, and now watching it again, it's strange that even though I saw something within the relatively recent term of five years, I still found uh, myself reacting differently emotionally, uh, even you know to some of the the humor um, than I did you know just again a few years ago. Like it, a film that still manages to surprise me um, with its inventiveness and its heart. Um, let's talk about Hollywood Shuffle, and I want to begin with asking: A, how are you doing? B, doing well. <laughs> how did you first experience Hollywood Shuffle? Uh, you know, I saw it in the theater. I think it was at the old Chestnut Chestnut Street Theater that they used to have. Do you remember that? It was, I think, six rather small theaters over on, I want to say, basically State and Chestnut. Um, and um, it was a surprisingly mixed audience. I was a little wondering if... Uh, you sort of the typical white audience would go out to them. But at that time they were seeing all kinds of movies. So it wasn't really a huge concern or any kind of fear in any way at, at all. But, um, you know, it was a very uh, crowded theater, a very mixed crowd, uh, ages too, uh, women and female, and everybody was really laughing. I mean, I think there was some laughter that was uncomfortable because it's like, wow, he's going there. And boy, did he really... <laughs> slam this and slam that but i remember really laughing and and it's funny because i have always thought back into this movie because i think it was one of those that you know sort of is forgotten as a trendsetter in hollywood i mean there's so many movies that we say well this halloween started the slasher films and uh you know this kind of film started that and blah 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 blah, blah. but this film really sort of opened up i think not only uh sort of a lot of the uh, awareness of black filmmakers and black talent, but also how they perceive Hollywood's perception of them and, and some of the st satirical kinds of things that came from that. I mean, In Living Color, I think, is the biggest one that came out of this a few years later with one of the screenwriters here. Um, uh, Keenan uh, and was uh, one of the writers on this along with uh, Robert Townsend. So, you know, it was interesting to see this and just think of that all again, because, you know, Keenan Ivory Wayans, I think, you know, he started his show and I think his brothers started their movies. And there's a lot of things that started to sort of get into the let's make fun of how Hollywood sort of views the black experience. And, you know, we get to the point where we have black dynamite and all these kind of things that came up from this, even to the point where Black Dynamite is a cartoon. Uh, I think that was on HBO or one of those Netflix, maybe for a few years back in the day. Uh, but I mean, really, you know, Hollywood Shuffle was kind of uh, setting a course for some of this sort of black satire and sort of taking the piss out of Hollywood's take on uh, the African-American experience, let alone African-American actors and, and the talents that they have. Yeah. I mean, my experience of it was a bit different. I mean, I was, 10 when this movie uh, came out ah, um oh you son. <laughs> so back in the day when i was a i was uh, barely in college then uh, well no it's, it's is that, <laughs> this is this is just to say that um you know <laughs> this is it's a very it was a very formative movie for me in a lot of ways sure. um i think i had seen some Siskel and Ebert so when they do the sneaking in the movies parody yes. uh, in this film I kind of recognize what they were going for right but in terms of critiquing movies from a certain like cultural point of view it got me thinking about you know different people's experiences of the art that they are presented with and it's okay to say yeah this doesn't speak to me and this is dumb and this is patronizing um, you know, everybody out there who's been watching the channel, feel free to take a shot because I'm about to mention that uh, my father, when he was alive, uh, he was black. So I am the product of a mixed race marriage. And my dad uh, was very much into, um, you know, trying to expose me to, uh, you know, films and TV of, you know, from black culture. And this was, you know, right in his wheelhouse. So in addition to all of that, it was the first movie that my parents had to kick me out of the room because I wouldn't stop laughing. 
I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm 10 years old. This is probably the most one of the most profane and outlandish things that I you know ever seen in terms of like the stereotyping mm-hmm. um, and just the you know as as you kind of mentioned audiences watching this in the theater saying can you can he say that can he go there um, so they threw me out after about a half hour they sent me up to bed and I had to go downstairs the next morning and watch it you know quietly trying to keep the laughter in while they were sleeping because we had to return the videotape that day or something like that. <laughs> um, and it, it, it really, you know, kind of changed my life in a way. Um, and it was, I think it was later that year, I got my first issue of Mad Magazine. Mm-hmm. So Robert Townsend and Keenan Ivory Wayans kind of blew open the door to satire. Like what is, you know, satire and spoofing? Um, and Later, you know, we were big fans of In Living Color, which you mentioned, which launched, you know, helped launch the career of Jim Carrey, which is its own trajectory. But then later on after that, as you mentioned, the Wayans family, they came out with a scary movie, which right. ironically, it, you know, they sort of branched out from doing, you know, so-called like black culture and commentary and satire to just satirizing mainstream Hollywood, you know, mm-hmm. action and horror movies. And it wasn't really about a race thing at all kind of much like Townsend and Wayans did in this movie proving that they didn't have to just stick to being a certain type of performer or doing certain types of parts I think the Wayans family proved that they didn't just have to be one thing when they were doing these other kinds of movies um, and then they had like you know Townsend did like Meteor Man in the night you know in the mid 90s and there were some kind of projects here and there that uh, you know some were hits and some were misses um, but yeah, the, the impact of what they did as, you know, mid twenties actors scraping together money in Hollywood, uh, to tell the stories that they wanted to see, I think, uh, that's probably my biggest takeaway from that. Well, it's interesting too. And I'll date myself because I can tell you that when I was your age and watching television in the seventies, um, there was, you know, obviously when, when, when you were the age that I was, when I saw this movie, not, yes, not when you right. were my age now, I, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm not that old, amazingly well-preserved considering. Uh, and for me as a young kid of 10 and, and sort of discovering all different kinds of things on television, it was a heady time because the seventies was the time of Norman Lear of roots of uh, a lot more of the expanded world of sports. So the idea that, you know, middle America that I was in a small town in Wisconsin was unfamiliar with black people was quickly becoming a misnomer. It wasn't true anymore because we saw them a lot and and their culture and and shows about them and and et cetera, et cetera, Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte and different singers and performers, of course, all around the disco era, et cetera, et cetera. But it's interesting because I think one of the things that Norman Lear shows did is they started to examine the characters that blacks got put in. And a lot of times they were the same characters that Townsend is satirizing here, albeit with more depth and shading. But, you know, sometimes now when you look at some of the stuff from Norman Lear's years as, as great and as revolutionary as all that was, it's like, wow, you know, they were playing janitors and, you know, cops and, you know, the sort of stereotypical bus drivers, black uh, roles and, you know, nurses and housewives or maids or whatever like that. I mean, Florida was a maid on Maud, you know, I mean, that kind of stuff was just, there you go. We're getting there, but not quite. So watching this movie in the eighties, you know, a good decade after a lot of that stuff was really becoming uh, sort of considered to be very modern television. It was interesting to see there hadn't been a lot of change in that. And there were still, issues with those roles being played by black actors, even if they were winning Emmys, even if they were great shows, even if they had a sort of progressive leaning into it, bent to it. It wasn't really coming quite as far as we'd hoped. And this movie and a lot of the stuff that Spike Lee did, and obviously some of the the, the stuff that August Wilson was doing in theater, were really challenging a lot of those kind of things, saying it's not enough. And we need to look at this and frankly, be responsible for writing it ourselves. I mean, most of the people who wrote Good Times and uh, the Jeffersons and stuff like that were veteran television writers from the 50s and 60s. Nothing wrong with that. They knew the world. They knew the world of sitcoms. But this kind of movie and this kind of decade was where they really started to say, you know, we should be telling our own stories. We can play these characters and write them as well, if not more in depth and give us a shot to sort of pull the reins. 
Yeah. And, you know, for those who may be watching this and don't really know what Hollywood Shuffle is, I don't know why you would be doing that. But um, <laughs> it is it's a comedy from 1987, as you mentioned, um, starring Robert Townsend as uh, Robert Taylor, Bobby Taylor, who's a right. struggling actor uh, living out in Hollywood. He's gotten a couple of like TV parts, but he's mostly working at a, a fast food place called Winky Dinky Dog. And he's constantly ditching out of work to go on auditions and he just has dreams of making it, but he's getting into his, you know, mid to late twenties and he doesn't know if he's got what it takes. He's got a number of people. I mean, his family is pretty supportive. He lives with his uh, mother and his younger brother and his grandmother. And they kind of believe, they believe in him as to as much as they can, but like his coworkers are constantly, no pun intended, dogging him, you know, because winky dicky dog. Um, right. And, you know, other people in that he's auditioning with. I mean, it's a cutthroat kind of audition mm -hmm. process um, of a lot of black actors vying for not very many roles and certainly right. not very many roles of substance. Um, so we follow him as he goes through the process of trying to get uh, the lead part in a movie called Jive Time Jimmy's Revenge. <laughs> and the opening of the film is just a black screen and we hear Bobby Taylor auditioning for this part as Ty as Jive Time Jimmy, who's uh, upset that his brother has just been killed or as he meant, as he says, it killed it. And it's just this stereotypical, horrible, like black, you know, street pimp Hollywood dialogue. And as we come to see who Bobby Taylor is in his bathroom, like reading the lines with his little brother. And he stops this, you know, jive talk to say, I'm sorry, what, what was that line again? And you realize that he is leaning into a part that is nothing like who he is or what he can do right. as an actor. Right. Um, and we get all these great fantasy sequences of him. As I mentioned, he is imagining he and his friends are talking about movies that are coming out. They're like, oh, fuck the film critics. What do they know? And so he and his friend imagine that they are sneaking in the movies, watching these blockbusters and giving kind of their real you know real life the the street opinion of, of these movies uh you get one of something that still just cracks me up and blows me away every time i see it uh during the audition one of the audition scenes uh, uh one of the guys next to him is saying how can you go in for these you know these ridiculous degrading parts you should have more dignity we can't be doing these roles we can't be accepting these roles and of course his name gets called next. He's like, I'm here. And he goes off to, <laughs> to you know, try and try and beg for the role, essentially. And at that point, Bobby has a fantasy about uh, being a slave, being a, a butler during the slave era, a bunch of like runaways. And, uh, you know, some of them want to go off, you know, don't want to leave the plantation. There's the one guy who plays Mandingo, who's got a girlfriend, but he's also got a side piece. And then the master's wife wants to run away with him. Yes. And when Bobby pops up as the butler who doesn't want to leave the plantation, someone yells cut. And all of a sudden he goes from being this like horrible, you know, step and fetch it kind of accent to this very fine, proper British accent. He says, hi, I'm Robert Taylor and I'm a black actor. And he goes into this commercial for black acting school where a bunch of white instructors are teaching black people how to act black and how to shuck and jive. And it's just it's a, it's stuff that. You know, you think back to 1987, it's the kind of thing that you'd see you would have seen on edgy TV like, you know, 10 years ago. You don't associate this kind of like imaginative, ballsy commentary back back then. But it, it's right there. No, you're exactly right. And watching it again, I was sort of shocked at how relevant and ballsy it still would be today. And if, you know, in fact, maybe some of that wouldn't quite make it today. I think, um, you know, he would have been criticized for probably some of the gay stereotyping and even arguably some of the lack of women uh, roles kind of in this. It is very male centric in many respects. Yeah. Um, and, and the female roles tend to be a little bit of the, for lack of a better term, cliche supporting kind, the, the wise old grandmother, the sort of no nonsense, no bullshit, decent girlfriend, you know, and that's kind of about as far as it goes by and large. But what, what I loved about the movie and why I think one of the reasons it's ballsy would even be ballsy today is it's working on a number of levels. The, the first thing is you've got an actor who's trying to make it in Hollywood. That's a interesting story right there. 
then you have this man who is a black actor trying to make it, which is a whole much more complicated thing. And everybody keeps telling him to be more like Eddie Murphy. Cause of course, Eddie Murphy was the big hot thing then. And ever since Sidney Poitier, he was the next thing. So we need another Poitier was in the thing in the sixties. We need another Eddie Murphy in the eighties. So everybody, especially in comedy was, can you be more like Eddie Murphy? It's like, well, if you can't get Eddie Murphy, then you get this guy. And if you can't get that guy, you get this guy that, I mean, even Keenan, talked about that how you know one of the reasons he wanted to do the show is to show that black actors can be funny without imitating eddie murphy as as great as eddie murphy was and then finally i think that the uh the the film works as a sort of uh meta film in the sense that it's not just a straight story of this actor trying to become something it's all these little fantasy sequences and these opportunities for Robert Townsend to not only, again, sort of make fun of conventions of Hollywood and, you know, how, you know, the British talk civilized. And of course, we can't have that in a, a Butler in the Civil War period and, and just the mix of that. But it's it's also his chance to show, I think, in some respects, show off because he's showing how versatile an actor he is. He's very good at, at mimicking uh, and, and imitating stuff. There's a part where he's doing a parody of Rambo called Rambro. And, you know, he's doing the face, this load face, ah! you know, and this guy's a very good mimic as Keenan and, and all of his brothers. And God knows Jim Carrey is, I think, the only white male actor on that series for a the token of, white. Yes. Right. Uh, <laughs> proved as, as did all the wonderful women on that. Kim Wayans was an incredible actress and I'm surprised she didn't do more after that. Maybe she didn't want to, but um, so it works on a number of levels. I mean, you're just getting this uh, film about Hollywood, this film about being an actor, this film about black stereotypes, this film about lack of opportunities for black actors and this kind of this expanded resume about Robert Townsend showing how talented he is. Um, and if I don't want to necessarily uh, take it into a different direction, but I will just throw this off too. I did a little research myself uh, getting ready for this show. And of course, one of the big stories at the time, which was an incredible story, but of course, leave it to Hollywood and all the people writing about it to worry about the money. You know, they don't worry about the messaging or the fact that Townsend is incredibly talented and there's other people in it. It's, it's funny. It's got that sort of airplane or Kentucky Fried movie vibe and all that kind of stuff to it, which is fantastic. No, they're talking about the fact that he financed the movie with his credit cards and he got like 35 different credit cards. And I think he spent the limit on each of them to, you know, cough up 70 70 or 85 grand or whatever it was to make this and i remember at the time that was the main story that came out of it like toast how you made this movie i mean even the trailer is all about that so you know here's all these people in hollywood who are seeing this wow he's making fun of us he's really giving it to us he's really shoving it to the man and oh my god though the main story is that he financed it with his credit cards and that's a little dis disingenuous and, and talk about racial injustice it's like Really? The color we're worried about now is green and not black? <laughs> That's kind of typical Hollywood, but there you go. Well, it's interesting. There's a, there's a bit more to that story. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't disagree with you, but it is, in a way, it's sort of cynical, but it's also, um, it was a, a way to get more attention to this movie. That's that, right. Because uh, the way Townsend tells it, he had $60,000 of his own money. Yeah. Um, that he had gotten from basically saving everything. He had had a, a few parts in some movies with some, you know, big co-stars. Uh, he was in a movie with Kevin Costner. He was in uh, I think he was in Soldier's Story, wasn't he? A Soldier's Story, which yep. you know was nominated for four Oscars. He was right. in Streets of Fire, one of my all-time favorite movies. Yes, yes. Um, along with with Grand Bush, uh, he was. They were the two of the the uh, band members that kind of get picked up in the middle of this, you know, adventure, oh, gotcha, and they yes. both show up in in Hollywood Shuffle. Um, but he had this money that he had scraped together mm -hmm. and he was able to film the, the movie took like two years, I guess, to make kind of off and on because, you right. know, he's not doing this with a studio. He's basically doing it guerrilla style with Wayans and his friend and whoever can, uh, you know, they can scrape together whenever they can get them. Right, right. But he ran out of money. And so he, as he said, he was doing some stand up. He came back and he had all these credit card offers waiting on his doorstep. So he basically <laughs> applied for all of them maxed out all of them and then when he finally sold the movie to samuel goldwyn apparently samuel goldwyn jr who was running the studio uh townsend said can i get the money now <laughs> because he had to pay you off see, all of these credit I've got cards these debts and uh well I don't yeah, want my that's credit rating to go down well Not the people worried about it then but now they well, really worry about that oh i'm sure but uh, Golden asked him, like, what's the hurry? And Townsend told him the whole credit card thing. He said, that's right. nuts, but we have to tell people about it. Right. Because that's a really 
interesting way of saying not only are we making a movie that people are you know responding to and we're pretty confident is going to be a hit but it was made in such an unconventional and fine it was made unconventionally and financed unconventionally and the thing that i'd never really thought about or even probably knew until listening to the, all this anecdote i got is from that from the criterion um, episode of the elvis mitchell uh, radio show or podcast that Townsend was on last year. Oh, interesting. Great, great, great conversation. Mm -hmm. But I'd always thought of the credit card financing a movie thing in the context of it was uh, Kevin Smith and I th doing Clerks, you know, right. 10 years, uh, eight years after Hollywood Shuffle. Mm -hmm. um, Robert Rodriguez, I think, did something similar. That's so right. El Mariachi. You, you, El Mariachi, right. Mm -hmm. So you hear about, you know, this, these kind of, and Gonzo Tarantino filmmakers doing their own thing. Yep. Right. And Tarantino, like working the video store and kind of like making the movies when he could, mm -hmm. you get these popular narratives that help mm -hmm. sell these movies. And I don't know if it was a, a race thing or if it was just that there was such a gap between Townsend doing it and then this kind of like wave of other people getting a similar idea. But I thought, man, that's Kevin Smith was such a pioneer. Tarantino, you know, financing a movie on credit cards. Turns out Townsend and his friends had done it, you know, almost a decade earlier. Right. Which is kind of funny that they've forgotten that, because I think one of the things that happened maybe in the 80s, and of course, everybody in Hollywood has a short memory. They only remember what made money last month and then they, or last year, and then they probably move on. But to that point, the 80s uh, was a time of really sort of independent films coming up and really getting going. Uh, you know, I remember, I think it was the year before if I'm not mistaken, where Sex, Lies, and Videotape with Steven Soderbergh broke through. and uh, that, was, that was 89. That was a little oh, bit. Oh, that was 89. That was... Okay, well, then yeah, yeah. I guess it's even, yeah, uh, uh, a little bit after. But I mean, you know, there was the whole indie movement. I think Sundance and Redford, what he was doing that was really starting to take a hold and defy the studio system, which I think had had a long, long run. You couldn't really get it in unless you had nepotism or somehow uh, had these, you know, connections. And here are these independent filmmakers. This was all before anybody thought of screenplay contests or screenwriting classes. They maybe would have that in college at UCLA and USC and NYU. And that was about it, other than maybe, you know, theater writing, where maybe they do a, a semester on screenwriting. Um, so it was kind of in the air. I think everybody was talking about indie movies, but it's funny because this is definitely one of those, maybe not as remembered as, as strongly as some of the other ones, but definitely Spike Lee, Rodriguez, Smith, all those people you talked about, Redford and Sundance, it really started to say, hey, we don't have to do this within the Hollywood studio system. It's too big. It's too monolithic. This is an opportunity for younger talents, people would never get in those doors, never get past the Paramount gates, otherwise a chance to show us what they can do. And if they had to finance on their own or by rook or by crook, they did. And that becomes a great story. But it also goes hand in hand with a good movie that, wow, that was made outside the movie industry's typical channels. And all the more power to it. Yeah, it's and it's also it's a movie about movies and kind of taking shots at the people who are pulling all the strings. I mean, it's right. a That's I think right. it's a testament that this movie got uh released because I could see someone easily just saying, you know, screw you. Like who who are you to to try and you know say this about us? Um in terms of you know, could this movie be made today? Well, Yes, in some some ways, because as people have talked about and I've talked about on this show, you know, filmmaking has become so comparatively inexpensive that mm -hmm. if you've got, you know, a phone, which you know, most of us have walking around, right. uh, you know, you could look like like the Florida Project you, you, or, you know, you can shoot things, you know, mm -hmm. on an iPhone and get it into film festivals and, and get big projects and deals uh, coming off of that. But and that's not to take anything away from what Townsend had done. I mean, he the the first part of Hollywood Shuffle when he filmed it, um, he was getting the the ends of film uh, film stock film reels right right from movies that he had worked on right like Norman right. Jewison who I think had done a soldier story that's correct gave him all of the ends and he mm -hmm. pieced those together to to create the the film reels right. that he shot Hollywood Shuffle on um, better get it but, one take Robert <laughs> right <laughs> you don't have enough film for a second. <laughs> um, but in terms of the, and this kind of goes back to what the conversation was, or, or one of the conversations around race was in the in the eighties. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for as much as Townsend was making fun of the tropes that had gotten you know Hollywood up to a certain point, mm -hmm. things were changing in the eighties. 
probably sort of while he was making this movie. So sure. there might not have been time to incorporate it. I mean, because you had what Philip Michael Thomas was co-starring on Miami Vice, right. uh, you know, with Don Johnson. And that show was like a cultural phenomenon. Right. 1987 also, I think that was the year, is either 86 or 87. I know this is a taboo name to bring up, but Bill Cosby, the Cosby mm -hmm. show. Right. And then that led to uh, a different world. And, and you know, both of those shows ran for a long time and presented very different aspirational um, viewpoints uh, for black Americans. Sure. Um, but as far as, you know, you know, Cosby got into a lot of trouble uh, years, you know, years before he got into the big trouble. And this is sort of the thing that I think caught the public attention that led mm -hmm. to the, what was the comedian that, that called him out on stage that kind of led to these, uh, oh, um, uh, Hannibal Burris, right? Hannibal Burris, yeah, that's right. Yes. Um, so Hannibal Burris was making fun of Bill Cosby, I believe because Cosby had said, you know, he basically his pull up, pull up your pants, you know, get married before you have kids. Yeah, he you know, started that giving kind of these kind of Lectures. speeches around uh, condemning rap music and the whole sort of um, too cool for the room black culture that he felt was destroying families and raising young black men to be very anti-authority and scary and all those kind of things that he was, you know, almost taking sort of the 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 pages from a lot of the racist kind of uh, dialogue that was out there in various circles and, and stuff and, and suddenly saying that himself, which didn't endear him to a lot of people in the community. I know. And that's the, that's the sort of the problem. And I'll get to that in a second, but sure. as Cosby was saying this, Hannibal Burris was doing some stand up, And at one point he basically said, you're a rapist, Bill Cosby. And people right. were like, what? And that kind of, I think, caused people to kind of go to Google and look up yeah. a lot of the stories that had been following him around for decades. But Those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? Right. But then that sort of, I think it sort of aligns with with Me Too. And, and you know, now he's, well, I think he's out now. He got sentenced and, yeah, that's you know, right. now he's, you know, he's walking around and. Uh, but supposedly doing the comeback to her, we'll see. Well, that'll be interesting. But uh, no, and full disclosure, my my godfather, uh, Joe Williams, the the jazz uh, musician, the Joe Williams, wow. yes, was actually on the Cosby Show. That's uh, right, playing uh, Claire Huxtable's dad. That's right. Um, it's it's a very weird experience. Uh, anyhow, my whole point about that <laughs> circular line is that Robert Townsend, without coming out and directly saying it, was in a way talking the same, uh, along the same ideal lines as what Bill Cosby was saying. Mm -hmm. Sort of extrapolating that from culture and the way people were living their lives to the entertainment that was potentially influencing and teaching, you know, young black, you know, men how to, how to behave. Playing pimps, you know, playing, you know, uh, you know, yeah, uneducated, like violent, you know, thugs, I know is a, is a loaded term, but that's the kind of stuff that he was trying to avoid. And, you know, the Robert Taylor, Bobby Taylor character in Hollywood Shuffle was condemning. And ultimately he walked away from what could have been the lucrative movie career. Like people were saying, oh, this is going to launch you. This is going to be, mm -hmm. you know, huge. Might have. Mm -hmm. It might have just been another black exploit, modern black exploitation film, the reality of that world. But he gave that all up to go along with what his grandmother was saying because she didn't like that uh mm -hmm. the roles that he was going up for she was offended by it and he said she's like there's always honest work at the post office the end of hollywood shuffle he gets his big break i guess doing a by doing public a coast, service post office commercial, commercial. Yeah. yeah that's right so well, my, it, it, my oh, point is like that cosby has been condemned mm -hmm. outside of you know the whole you know everything that he did or did not do whatever in his right. past, the stuff he was convicted for, but he was, you know, called a, a sellout and who is he to lecture people? But I think he was critiquing perhaps inartfully and perhaps a little bit too forcefully. That's an odd term to use in terms of Bill Cosby, but uh, problems that he saw with the generation that was and the generations that were coming up after him in terms of right. the way they portrayed themselves, the way they wanted to see themselves portrayed, uh, and I think Townsend and Cosby were oddly aligned in that respect. It's um, it's a, a fine line sometimes between, um, you know, assuming sort of the control of it, so it becomes their story versus the typical white screenwriter's story or Hollywood mogul's kind of version of it. 
and what is a cliche or kind of dangerous. I mean, I think it's interesting when you think about 1987, that same year, uh, Morgan Freeman became known and sort of a movie star uh, to most audiences by the movie Street Smart, where he played uh, a, a really threatening, tough pimp in it, one of the greatest villain roles probably on screen in that decade for sure. And he got an Oscar nomination for it and then kind of never looked back. I mean, he was a, a movie star in, in doing lead roles after that with Glory and that begat seven in which he in which he played a slave uh <laughs> right or, right yeah, or, yeah. And, you know again it's kind of roles even driving miss daisy a lot of people criticize that movie as you know going back to a time that we wanted to get past and ironically it beats out do the right thing for best film that year um which i think do the right thing was not even nominated that year but as spike lee once said every time somebody's driving somebody around i might movie lose out my movie loses out just like when uh <laughs> green book beat oh, out black Klansman yeah. a couple of years ago it's like don't get in the car spike um <laughs> but uh that's so sad and funny i love the fact that he was able to sort of spin that and find that comparison but um but here you have street smart you know uh morgan freeman who had done a number of things on broadway he had done uh, theater and, and stuff, Shakespeare throughout the nation. Uh, he was in, in some great productions. He was on Electric Company for, I think, four or five seasons and was part of the Children's Television Workshop start, which was incredible. And the role that bursts him through is, of course, him playing a pimp. Um, however, it's a very uh, well-done ro role. It was a better written movie and than, than most of the exploitation stuff from a lot of the sixties and some of those kind of things, but it is that fine line because I, and I think Townsend is even arguing that here, you know, because he himself is showing how it's satirical and, and making fun of it. And yet he's also doing it because it's what's so recognizable to people. And he's using that as a touch point because it is something that is unfortunately part of the black experience in Hollywood that they're forced to play these roles because that's all they're writing. And, um, but it is ironic. And, and I think the other thing, if I dare say, and I don't want to necessarily get to this if it's too soon, but what I think is funny in watching this movie too, and I watched it not only just from my thoughts as an, a fan and a movie critic, but thinking about the audience and the world around us. And while a lot of our world has come very, very far, I mean, obviously we've had a black president and all kinds of other things and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, <laughs> uh, we're re repealing civil rights legislation and voters and le legislation making it tougher for people. And uh, we had a president who was very open about uh, calling names and not liking certain people of diversity and things like that. So some of these battles still are being fought that we thought were maybe won back in the day of Robert Townsend. And going after the Hollywood battle was his kind of uh, hill. But uh, it was ironic watching it today thinking, you know, I'm almost thinking you could make that movie today. And for some people, that would still be an eye opener, even though by now, a lot of that should be like, yeah, that's what it was like back then. And thank God it isn't that way now. But in certain places, we haven't progressed as far as we should. Well, sure. I mean, that's a whole political argument because Grant you. I, I will. I mean, I'm going to disagree with you a bit on the legislation stuff and the yes. voter stuff. I'm going to disagree with you a bit on Trump and how some of what he said was characterized. Um, I mean, because if you look back on Trump was basically a New York liberal up until he decided to run for president. Right. Yeah. The top rated right. show on television. Right. He had been hanging around with minorities and, and black people and getting awards from black, you know, organizations for decades. Friends with the Clint was great friends with the Clintons. They were at his wedding. Right. So I'm saying it's a bit more. I understand the criticism, right. but it's also, you know, like well, everything I, else is more. It's nuanced than that. Right. But I guess what I'm saying and not necessarily saying that he was I mean, you could also point to the 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 Central Park Five that he never let go of even after they were exonerated. So, and his father's history and stuff. But I I, I take your point. What I think though is um, things that uh, movies like this tried to get us away from talking about or saying or automatically defaulting to haven't necessarily gone away uh, the way they should have and and seem to have for many decades after that. I think uh, there's still a lot of the dog whistles. There's still a lot of the read between the lines rhetoric uh, and attitudes that uh, shows that while we've made miles and miles of movement and, and 
progression. It, it's it, not as always as, as as much as we should have, or there's still some of these strains of of that out there. Yeah, I mean, and there's always going to be room to grow and to improve. And those critiques are not, you know, limited to, you know, one group or one race right, or another. Exactly. Like everyone, <laughs> women's films. Kind of, I mean, hmm? about women's films and women's place in Hollywood and some of that I think is not as uh, progressive as it really should be by now either, considering we've talked about women's rights and everything like that since the 60s. I mean, Gloria Stein is in her 80s now it's like why are we still arguing about a woman's right over her own body or uh, women as directors and and getting their kind of fair shake and those kind of things in hollywood yeah and it's interesting that you brought up <coughs> excuse me um we were talking earlier about how this movie does it's not that it is you know uh misogynist or anything but you know the, there are not a lot of great parts or at least non-cliche parts for for women in the film right i would put that more as a function of i mean certainly we weren't as progressive minded back in the the 80s as we are today right. but also it's not really about them it's about sure. you know the experience the experience of two young black male film you know actors right. turned filmmakers almost out of desperation right. because Townsend was not a filmmaker he was an actor who right. decided that no you know there were no roads for me I gotta get I gotta pave my own I gotta mix the cement right. and build this fucker yep. so the fact that this is not about his you know girlfriend played wonderfully by Anne Marie Johnson who yeah, I think good. it was like right after this was on uh, a show that another show I grew up with uh, like there's so many spider webs like shooting out from from Hollywood <laughs> Shuffle around it. Like uh, what's happening now? That's I grew right. up watching what's happening when I was a little kid, like on reruns. And yes, rerun <laughs> was in reruns, the show. Uh, yes. <laughs> hey, Raj. Oh God. Oh, Do I you just remember that theme song. No, who? Henry Mancini. Really? I think Henry Mancini wrote that theme song for what's happening. I yeah. Let me put it this way: if he didn't. He re he recorded an album with it on there because I remember I had some Henry Mancini albums and that was on there. But I think he did that theme. I could be wrong. Wow, but yeah, but she was Anne Marie Johnson around yeah, the time of this movie right. would be on the sequel, like the kind of the sequel series. What's happening now? Where Raj and Run and Dwayne are all kind of grown up. It's only a few years after right. I think the, the show right. is on. Like oh, we we left them when they were eighteen and now they're twenty five. <laughs> that's or right. That's right. Um, but I mean, for what she is in this movie i mean it's again it's not a a really deep part but i think she makes the most of it along right. with the grandmother character um you know she is really the catalyst for bobby taylor realizing what he's doing with his life and the impact it's having mm -hmm. on her because she kind of says i don't like you playing these pimp parts I can't remember if it was her idea to bring Bobby's younger brother to the set at the end when he's they're filming or at least doing like a dress rehearsal of Drive Time Jimmy's Revenge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But he looks Bobby looks over and sees his younger brother when he's doing these like the director actually uh, calls cut at one point because I think Bobby forgets one of his lines. He's getting distracted. And the guy's like, look, that's great on this next take. Can you stick your butt out more and kind of bug your eyes out and right, get real, right. real jivey, like right. really black on this make one. Make it more black. That's the line they keep saying throughout this. Can you make it more black? Which is right. what they were meaning. And they even explicitly say, stick your butt out more, pop your eyes out, all that kind of shit. Oh my God. <laughs> there, There's even a, like, a, wow. Well, there's even a fantasy sequence shortly before this where Bobby imagines himself getting, you know, talk about a precursor. He, he gets canceled uh, and protests outside his house and the head of the NAACP Paul, played by Paul Mooney is like condemning him. And even his girlfriend is like, I think we should just kill him. And she gets out a gun and uh, it's like, is this the face he makes in bed? And there's a poster no. of him doing like the bug eyed thing. And yeah. Yeah. It's really, I funny. think, I think he says, well, sometimes I do. Um, but, <laughs> but at the end of the film, you know, grandma really is uh, setting Bobby up to put up a mirror to who his audience is going to be mm -hmm. not only in terms of who might just end up watching the movie, but who might be affected by it in a cultural kind of an identity level. Right. And that caused them to snap out and be like, I can't do this. There has to be something else I can do. Even if it's working at the post office mm -hmm. or going for a commercial role, 
I noticed at the end in that set, there was it was kind of a mixed uh, crew and they were all very supportive. Whereas the people in the was it Tinseltown Pictures, I think, was the studio that he was working right, for. Right. They're mostly white people and they don't give a crap about anybody who's in that audition room. You know, it's they're just they're just cattle, they're product. It's like see, it's like a Hollywood about, plantation. Right. And what's funny about that, too, is, of course, that's just a straight out satire on the way people are in Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, it's not just black movies and auditioning actors for those kinds of films that they were making that you see those people who don't care and they don't know what they're talking about and they're rude and they're uh, snide and uh, worried about a hundred other things while they're, you're trying to get their attention and, and get your shot. Uh, so, so yeah, it works on that level too, which is just hilarious, but I love the, I love some of the, the deeper stuff that is going on here, not only with some of those things that you said, but there is that example of like, what are you leaving for the next generation? You know, like, well, I want to get my money. I want to get my thing here, but what are you doing for the next generation? Whether that's directly your brother or your kid or whoever else follows you. And that's not just in Hollywood. I mean, I think that's about a lot of decisions that affect the world or affect uh, potentially, uh, have these ripple effects or, you know, things that we do now can last a lifetime and last an eternity is, uh, I, I believe it was said in uh, gladiator. Uh, <laughs> what we do in this lifetime, whatever. Thank you, Russell Crowe. <laughs> Maybe cough before you deliver your next line. Get that phlegm out of your throat. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but that's what I like about it. I think there's so many different sort of planes that Townsend is working here very, very cleverly, and including that one. Like at the end of the day, it isn't just about, hey, I'm an actor who wants a better chance and doesn't like these stereotypes. It's also, what is this saying to the people you have to sort of face or maybe the next people are going to come up and are you, are you advancing the ball for them? Yeah, I mean, um, there was a wonderful scene which well, I was talking earlier about how it was a different experience watching this now than it even was five years ago. I really keyed in on the scene where Bobby goes to visit his uncle Ray, who's got a barber shop. Right. But he used to be he was an aspiring I think it was an aspiring singer who walked away from like it was at the precipice of what could have been a really good career. Right. But he started listening to all the voices and negativity at right. first, the ones around him of the people in his community kind of saying, you're never going to make it. You know, who do you think you are to try and escape all this and go to Hollywood or whatever? Right. And then he said something like, then those voices became the voice in my head. And then I just I, I couldn't I couldn't hack it anymore. I yeah. just stopped. Yeah. But you have to keep going because you've got something special. and You can't listen to all these other uh, voices like it's just it's a great message about pursuing your dreams at all costs, especially, you know, that idea of perspective because uncle Ray was not, I didn't get the feeling he was that much older than Bobby, like maybe right, 20 years, right. but right. you get the feeling that that 20, the, the difference between 27 and 47 or 50 goes by in the blink of an eye. And you can either say I fought for what I wanted to be and it just didn't work versus I kind of tried and I gave up and I'm mm -hmm. still, I still have to get to age 50, mm -hmm. but what, are those intervening years going to be like? Are they going to be struggle and possible reward or, you know, regret and mopping, you know, cleaning up in a barber shop? Not there's anything wrong with that, except that he may have deprived the world of, you know, a fantastic singing voice. Exactly. And I think it's interesting too, to sort of almost add some depth or context to that as well. Some of the actors and the people in this movie are some comedians who didn't quite get to that A-list or weren't given the opportunities that they probably should have as talented as they were. I, again, it's, it's so often times about, you know, luck and the right project, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it, it has a way of being about this and then also being about that because he's using a lot of the same uh, ideas in his screenplay that are true of uh, a large deal of that cast there that is probably, you know, the could have been's and the would have been's if things were different in Hollywood or they had gotten a better, de decent chance. I would also argue that as, as successful as Robert Townsend has been behind the camera after that movie and some of the things that he starred in, and he's done a number of shows and 
certainly been a success story in Hollywood. It's funny how few of the actors, even to think about in Living Color and the Wayans Brothers and stuff like that, they've all had their runs. And I grant you the shelf life of any actor these days tends to be a little short. But at the same time, there's not a lot of those guys who, you know, Robert Townsend could certainly be in front of the camera. He was good looking and had a lot of talent, stuff like that, but didn't become quite the star that maybe he could have been and stuff. Although, like I said, he's a big person producing, writing, creating shows and stuff behind it. Maybe he realized that was probably a better place to have a longer career, make more of an impact, be able to have control of the material. But as I watched this, I kept thinking about like, you know, there were people like Franklin Ajay in there, who's a, who was a comedian at the time and didn't quite get to that level of Eddie Murphy, Chris Rock and stuff like that. And some of it is maybe because his delivery wasn't as edgy or whatever at the time. And maybe with Eddie Murphy opening the door for edgier stuff and Richard Pryor, et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah, it just, it, it, as you're watching this, you realize he's writing a story about the trouble of black talent. And then he's also cast the film with black talent who have had those exact experiences. Well, that that's true. I mean, I will say that the hit rate for people who have appeared in Hollywood Shuffle and some of the subsequent Wayans projects has is pretty pretty solid. Yeah, yeah, I mean, not terrible, not not bad at all. But um, at the same time, you know, there's not a, a a lot of those people who are as big as maybe, you know, I mean. But go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. But but I'm saying that 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 is kind of true for Hollywood, though. I mean, true. There, how many? like multi-million dollar marquee name celebrities are there in Hollywood anymore. Very few. You're right. Maybe if you talk about in the last couple of decades, maybe a hundred, but you've got a hundred thousand probably at least in that town trying to be one of those hundred. It's the, it's the yeah. Pareto principle, right? For so sure. I guess, uh, and, and also it comes back to sort of what you were touching on. How many people wanted to be Eddie Murphy or, you know, maybe they wanted the leg up that that foot in the door so they could go produce or, you right. know, use that to you know just do their own kind of thing. I don't know what the stories are. It'd be fascinating to find out. But it is one of those things where, you know, Hollywood careers are so strange. Some people strike it big and then they fade away. Some people strike it big and then you see them just kind of doing bit parts for you know several decades, becoming great character actors. Mm -hmm. um, so it's hard to say what happened i will say one of the other i guess the last anecdote that i'll share from that um elvis mitchell interview was about eddie murphy and it was sort of about robert townsend learning the meta narrative of the uncle ray's barbershop story yeah which is the eddie murphy scene which you alluded to earlier <laughs> where he's imagining going in for an audition because they need an eddie murphy type Yep. And Bobby Taylor doesn't know what that means, but he shows up and there's all these people, some in, you know, some in blackface, yeah. uh, you know, in the black leather jacket yes. with the Afro yes. and doing the, the, the corny laugh and all that stuff. Uh, Eddie Murphy, Keenan Ivory Wayans and Robert Townsend knew each other around this time mm -hmm. and they were kind of friendly. And Keenan was very wary about this scene mm -hmm. because he didn't want to offend the great Eddie Murphy, but Eddie had heard about this movie through, you know, various circles. He's like, I got to see this film. So they had a private screening, showed up with his big entourage and they were watching it. And then the Eddie Murphy scene came up. And apparently up until that point, everyone was like laughing their asses off. But when the Eddie Murphy scene came up, everyone went really quiet because it's Eddie Murphy's entourage. You don't want to be the one guy who's laughing right, and Eddie Murphy's right. offended and all that stuff. Right, but apparently right. Eddie Murphy thought it was really funny. And Townsend went up to him after the screening, kind of apologized, like, look, I was just kind of taking the piss and I hope you weren't offended. And he's like, no, man, I love it. In fact, I'm getting ready to do this stand-up movie later this year. I think you'd be perfect for it. And that's how Robert Townsend not only directed Raw. Hollywood Shuffle in 1987, yeah. but Eddie Murphy's Raw. That's right. That's right. Biggest concert movie ever. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's funny. I think Eddie Murphy at that time... <laughs> was very well aware of his power and, and his stature. And I'm sure in some respects, it was a compliment to be told we want an Eddie Murphy type here. And he knows what he was doing to make people laugh and his style and anything else. I mean, again, imitation is oftentimes the sincerest form of flattery, but uh, you know, he's held up as kind of the 
the primo guy in this movie. So of course he's got to like that. And obviously he has a comedian who took the piss out of everybody from Jackie Gleason to uh, Bill Cosby and other people in raw. I'm sure he can appreciate the fact that eh, once you get to certain superstar status, they're going to come for you. At least if they do it, they're funny like Robert Townsend was. But, and that's, that's exactly right. But um, the reason I told that story is that Keenan Ivory Wayans, who co-wrote Hollywood shuffle with Robert Townsend ended up being the kind of voice in Robert Townsend's head that other people were to Uncle Ray yeah. saying like, look, I know you really believe in this, but you know, if you do this, it could really mess things up for us. We don't want right. to rock the boat. We don't want to take this chance because it could, right. you know, destroy us before it makes us. And Townsend was like, I think it's going to work. And it, and it, sure enough, it did. And it paid off in dividends in ways that if Townsend had listened to Keenan Ivory Wayans, he and Ivory Wayans might not have had the career that he had You're in right. certain respects. You're right. <laughs> well, and I also think that to your earlier allusion to Mad Magazine, I think since Mad Magazine, Saturday Night Live, uh, the stuff that the uh, Abrams and Zucker folks did with Air Airplane, we are now a world and, a, and certainly a nation, a youth market primed on satire. Uh, stuff is made fun of almost as soon as, I mean, look at all the Wednesday dances that are all over TikTok. <laughs> Those are essentially parodies. They're homages, but you know, when you've got kids doing it and grandparents, I mean, they're all sort of satirizing it. Like, what would that look like? Oh, it's funny because an eight year old's doing it, or it's funny because a four year old can do it. Wow. That's impressive. So I think, you know, satire is now part of it's baked into comedy and to be made fun of. I mean, look at the Super Bowl commercials. The Super Bowl commercials are all about making fun of celebrities and uh, intellectual properties. There's there's very, very rarely truly novel, new kinds of thoughts there because they don't have enough time. They don't have enough uh, attention span from the audience. They've got to say, okay, we're going to do a Grease parody. Well, why are you using the guys from Scrubs? It doesn't matter if they're doing a song <laughs> with John Travolta. Okay, I would have exnayed that idea. Some other creative director out there said, no, that's brilliant. Let's do it. Um, so I think Townsend and uh, Keenan Ivory Wayans and even to some degree, Eddie Murphy, when he's sitting there going, and I've been watching you, Norton, and I've been watching you, watching me, watching you. Satire and sacred cows and going after your idols. It's all fair game and part of what we want, part of what we crave, part of what we expect. Yeah, and I think, it's interesting because that's almost like an entire different discussion about how <laughs> yeah. satire has almost become a little bit too ubiquitous yes. <laughs> to the point where it's referencing itself. It's almost itself. the comedy. Yeah, it's almost right. the comedy now. It's like, it's so meta. Like it's, comedy can't just be straightforward like a rom-com. It's almost got to be making fun of rom-coms. Right. Um, but it's interesting, like if you look at the the satires that you know kind of create make up the fantasy sequences in Hollywood Shuffle, a lot of it is sort of what I'll call Robert Townsend and Kevin Iru Wayans black takes on white popular culture, True. Um, you know, which a lot of people, you know, talk about, you know, rightly or wrongly. I, I'm not going to, you know, judge anyone's experience, but you hear a lot of people saying like when I grew up, like the, the actress is playing the little mermaid. Um, I'm blanking on her name. Oh gosh. I'm blanking. Oh, sorry. it's a Haley, Haley Berry. There you right go. or ha yeah. or Hallie Harry Hallie Bailey I think it is yeah I'm it's it's uh, very similar to Hallie Hallie Bailey I'm gonna look it up for right. you <laughs> but she had recently come out and said like I wish there had been you know uh, someone like me in this role when I was a kid so you know black and brown children could see themselves in these parts I mean she's like 18 years old so I don't exactly right. know what that means <laughs> like right. things have been moving in a very progressive direction in terms of entertainment for at least the last 20 years right it's more of a talking point than I think anything of her anyone of her generation should be saying people of like Townsend's generation and perhaps a little bit younger than that I think they've got more of a claim but it's interesting that they're not talking about how like Casablanca was horribly racist or Superman was problematic because he was white it was more that there are all different kinds of audiences who can resonate with these old films and TV shows, but there could also be a bit of a, you know, a twist on that perspective that someone from a different background, a more diverse background could bring to the material. Yes. I think it's sort of a way that something that we're kind of seeing in some of these like recastings and reimaginings uh, today, but Townsend was doing it, you know, he was thinking along these lines 35 years ago. 
Well, I think what you're pointing to is that maybe it isn't enough, even if it seems like it's a lot. And, and, and indeed, it is a lot more than it used to be. And you're right, it is Halle Bailey. I know it's so <laughs> close to Halle Berry, but uh, I'm sure maybe your parents wanted that. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think maybe her point can be taken more than just a talking point, because I think Disney uh, and the whole sort of animated world was a little slow in catching up to some of that. I mean, you know, they had to do the frog uh, princess uh, to finally get a sort of black princess in in front of uh kids and and there hasn't always been as much diversity in cartoons though much more so than many many years ago even though when i was a kid they had haji and uh johnny quest so come on i was we <laughs> todd watching that in the late 60s come on folks um but yeah i think it's it's interesting it, it probably can always be a little bit more or uh and, and i think you know having to kind of go out of the way to do the different kinds of conscious casting uh, we haven't gotten to the point yet where it's kind of still not uh, going to be noticed it is going to be noticed and i think one of the success points of hamilton is because here's this story about america and it was kind of colorblind and it's supposed to be the idea of america is supposed to be that including the bill of rights and the declaration of independence and all the things that alexander hamilton and the ilk did however not quite and yet <laughs> by doing it today with a you know much more much more diverse audience than say did 1776 back in 69 on broadway uh it's making the point that in theory this is where it should be maybe we're there today maybe not but by casting it that way it adds an extra layer of thought to it because it's like are we as idealized as the, supposedly we think the founding fathers intended no we're not but at the same time we are moving quite a bit forward and in many good ways. And this movie in 1987 was an amazing film and it looks pretty amazing today. I'm also impressed by how good a director he was at that time, having not done a, I mean, he obviously has watched television and movies and knows where to put the camera and how to edit and build a scene and, and direct actors. But that was very well done here. I mean, I don't think his film looks amateurish uh, in any way other than you could say that some movies in the 80s had a certain look to them. The camera was still a little far back. Uh, sometimes the lighting was a little flat. It wasn't quite as nuanced. I mean, goddamn, Gordon Willis was really onto something with his shadows in 72, and yet he couldn't get an Oscar nomination to save his life because he was from New York, and everybody thought he was putting too much darkness in the in the, the frame. It's like, <laughs> that's what lighting looks like. It's not all overlit. Uh, right. You know, Townsend's still kind of overlighting in that Universal Studios 70s kind of look here, which is also funny because a lot of times, you know, modestly uh, funded films uh, tend to be overlit, and he was not only making one, but he was showing a movie that was being made that had that same kind of characteristic. Well, I think that's sort of the, I think in a way that's sort of the genius of, of what he did here was he was trying to make something that even though it was scraped together on credit cards and, you know, leftover filmed on leftover bits of film, right. he wanted to make something that was commercial that would not be, you know, to to use an interruptful term, ghettoized to be like, right. I think he kind of talks about this. He didn't want it to be a black <laughs> film. He wanted it to be an, seen as an independent film, which yep. are two completely different things. Right. Um, I think he he succeeded great. And yeah, it's it's an older you know movie. It's 35 years old or 36 at this point, but you can watch it and it's got a really nice transfer. It looks crisp. It's bright. It's, you know, colorful. It's inventive because like when he's doing the, you know, the, the, the Sam Ace, which is the sort of the Sam Spade takeoff, it goes to black and white and it's all yes. grainy and it's got that kind of film noir thing to it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful movie that I think gets better every time I watch it. And every time I watch it, I'm just, I'm learning, I'm unlocking more about how I came to think about movies and cultural issues. Mm -hmm. And I'm also finding new ways to laugh and new ways to be kind of moved by it. Like I mentioned, the Uncle Ray sequence. For sure. I also think, Ian, that one of the great things that he's telling us in this movie, and again, this is maybe another layer that it kind of works on, is that while we may think that whatever we conjure up in our heads as the Black community or, you know, where he came from in some of the, uh, the, the past, their experience is often very similar to ours through the lens of the television and what movies and shows they're watching. They're watching a lot of the same things we are. So, and Townsend. that that was what I was kind of getting at. Yeah. With, you Townsend know, it's not like. Of... Oh, good. Well, I was going to say, like, 
he could have his cultural touchstones instead of like you know a 1940s like white detective movie could have been you know freaking Sanford and Son or In the Heat of the Night or something. But no, he's doing right. Superman and you know Humphrey Bogart. That's right, and I think to a large degree, uh, everybody in America has that same experience through television. I think that television, in some respects, is a great equalizer in that we are all watching similar shows. We all have access to it. And we've grown up with those, whether, you know, it's certain cartoon shows or certain shows that did not necessarily have enough representation. In it, they're still affecting and inter interesting and entertaining to large amounts of audience out there, whether they're represented or not. It reminds me of, um, I used to be a creative director on toy accounts and we did a number of focus groups and research and all that. And we found that young girls being brought up can relate to young boys as the lead character in books, in stories. They could read Huck Finn and relate to Huck Finn, even if it's a boy. They're not necessarily re relating to Becky Thatcher, or they could watch, um, you know, Dexter's Laboratory and identify more with Dexter than his bratty sister and things like that. Or, you know, they would look at superheroes, the Power Rangers, whatever, and and could like the Pink Ranger, but they could also identify with whatever problems were greeting, greeting the Green Ranger. Boys, not necessarily. Uh, boys mm. are a little spoiled. They can't necessarily relate to the female characters. But I guess what I'm saying is I think when you're part of the have not, sometimes with the people who aren't necessarily always seeing yourself in books, in shows, in culture, you find a way in and the universal nature of their stories, whether it's a boy character or a female character, uh, is relatable to most people. And that's one of the great things I think about this movie. It's not just Sanford's son. It's not just... Um, you know, sweet, sweet, uh, badass, you know, that kind of stuff that might be considered, oh, uh, they only related to the movies that they went to see in like Shaft and, and, and Superfly. It's like, no, they are far more, you know, probably familiar with I Love Lucy or Humphrey Bogart than, uh, you know, the Van Peebles. I mean, I'm sorry, but they probably are, you know, and that's because, you know, Melvin Van Peebles movies didn't always come to our neighborhood, every neighborhood where TV gets into every household in every corner of this country. So, right. Or even like mainstream Hollywood movies like, you know, Jaws and Star Wars and exactly. stuff like that. Right. All that stuff is there and enjoyed by masses of audience, all four quadrants, all races, all sexes, all different people. So, yeah. Wow, this this was a more much more robust conversation than I thought it was. <laughs> like we 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 talked about Hollywood Shuffle. We also talked about a lot of other stuff, and, and I I had a lot of fun. So I thank you, Jeff, for for watching this um, again and and for talking with it, uh, talking about it with me. I hope neither of us get canceled as a result of this. Um, <laughs> you might have to go back and edit in case there's something we say that's too controversial. But no, I think uh, it was a great movie to discuss because. It's a great movie. It's a great comedy. It's a great comedy about Hollywood. And it also is a great comedy about a black actor trying to get some attention in that town that at that point wasn't giving them, uh, giving black actors and people of diversity enough opportunity. So he made his own. That's five different uh, layers you can appreciate this movie on. And you and I, I think, definitely appreciate it on all those. Yeah. And, and for anyone who's watching this, again, if you haven't seen it and you've made it all the way through the end of this episode, congratulations. <laughs> but if you've never seen Hollywood Shuffle and you're one of those people, not to you know generalize, but I know some folks are like, I don't want to watch anything that came out before the year 2000 because it's old and you know I, it's not for me. This movie is 35 years old. I still think of 35 year old movies as being like from the 50s because I'm developmentally arrested. But, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's one of those things I think you could put it on and just be surprised about how current and funny it is. You might not get all the references, like who the hell is, you know, Sam Spade, but you're going to get, you know, you're going to get some of them, I think, get a lot of out of it in terms of the messages and just the, the, the talent that is just like all over the place. The one goof uh, before I go is that I noticed when Bobby goes in for his first audition, they have a wide shot of all the people that are, you know, in line in front of him because he's ditching from Winky Dinky Dog. It's 1030 right. in the morning. He has to be back before the noon rush. And there's no way he's going to make it because there's this long line. One of the people in the audition seats is Don Myrera. 
who plays the white screenwriter of Drive Time oh, Jimmy's Revenge, funny. who we see right, a couple minutes right. later in the audition room yeah. with the other two people. He's wearing it's a different like, set of clothes, but it's almost like they took one of the outtakes or one of the establishing <laughs> shots that he just happened to be there hanging yeah. out and they put yeah. it in the movie. <laughs> he didn't have the uh, the film ends to go back and reshoot that. <laughs> That's right. If Damn only, <laughs> if only Jewison had given me one more reel. Thanks, Norman. I appreciate all you did. However, one flaw. Ruined the movie. No. Um, all right, Jeff, thanks so much for for talking about Hollywood Shovel with me again. Folks, check out Jeff's stuff at the establishing shot. Not only a great critic, but also a, a tremendous artist. Um have you done did you ever do a caricature of like robert townsend or hollywood shuffle or anything like you that no i was not as prolific about uh doing caricatures back in those days or if i did i it wasn't really necessarily doing movies i was probably doing politicians or co-workers or things like that but uh around the mid 90s i started to really sort of get back into caricaturing again so done uh a lot of them since a lot of movies since then nothing of townsend but uh uh, yeah, that's a that's a good one. He would have been he he's got a good look to him. He would have been a good caricature, handsome yet expressive and kind of funny too. Oh yeah, um, I just I hate the the poster. Like the, there's this one poster for Hollywood Shuffle is just him and Anna Marie Johnson. Oh yeah, and it looks like it's some kind of a romantic comedy about like know. you know they met in a bookstore and you know <laughs> I don't know what's going on with this poster. You know the but... '80s as good as the '80s were, and I think they get knocked a lot as a decade for film because there's a lot of terrific movies in the '80s. Uh, I will say this: I think posters took a real step down from the '60s and '70s in the '80s. That's when I think you know, a lot of the montages started to come in there or they would, you know, have that sort of fuzzy image that they thought might be more appealing to everybody, like a romantic image when it's not really uh, a romantic movie here and stuff like that. Uh, uh, the 80s and 90s, I think movie posters left a lot to be desired. And it's kind of a lost art in some respects all together. Now, um, I mean, I even get mad about the fact that most television shows don't have decent credit sequences anymore. It's like, where are the great <laughs> theme songs? Come on! Uh, usually it's like they have to scrape to come up with five really good ones for the Emmys each year. Like, really? That's a nominated theme song? What show is that? Uh, but um, anyway, yeah, the poster was maybe the only thing that I, I, to your point, I didn't really like about this movie. Yeah. Well, movie posters are a dead art, I think, um, with some exceptions. But I mean, for me, like it peaked with the 1990 late 90s uh star wars reissues where they actually got drew struzan to do yes. you know collage posters but they're drew struzan collage posters and they're they're works of art in and of themselves they are and i'm going to just throw this in there because you and i are american academy of art alums but uh, we've talked about this a little bit but um one of the nice things about me preceding you in those decades <laughs> is i grew up on bob peak and richard amsel and uh some of those kind of artists who are doing movie posters all the time and incredible work and um when when i show those to young people who are not familiar with them and they generally say like wow i didn't realize movie co posters could be illustrations it's like yes <laughs> yes they can <laughs> oh. it doesn't just have to be photoshop but you know we need it we need a renaissance in the movie poster i'm putting it out there all right I'm going to I'm going to get us out of here because, you know, I'm, we're going to Hollywood shuffle along um, <laughs> back to our back to our respective evenings. Jeff, thanks so much again, um, folks. Check out uh, Jeff's stuff again at the establishing shot. If you liked this content, please feel free to like and subscribe to Kicking the Seat. And, you know, if you're a fan of Hollywood shuffle and Criterion, you can get the the Blu-ray. It's out today. There's a bunch of extra features and the, the transfer looks great. And uh, yes, all hail Robert Townsend. Uh, this, this movie is a masterpiece. So. Jeff, thanks a lot, and uh, we'll catch you later. Thank you, Ian.